Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the Paulo Sarguero Show. We will be here until 5 o'clock this afternoon, uh, 5 o'clock Eastern time, of course, got to specify, because today's guest is actually on the West Coast of the United States from California. Um, hope everyone's enjoying their weekend thus far. 33 degrees here in Attleboro, Massachusetts. Uh, today we have a special guest from, like I said, from California. We've actually had a few guests from California. We've had um, Tom Dreesen, who was the comedian who opened for Frank Sinatra that we've had on our show. We've had uh, Eric Montero from California, who is a Portuguese-American uh, filmmaker out of there. And then today we have Professor uh, Denise Borges from uh, Fresno State. And today we will get, we're going to be talking about the Portuguese immigration to um, California and then um, the Portuguese Beyond Borders Institute as well towards the end of our interview. So uh, we're going to talk about the Portuguese immigration, kind of the settlement in California, industries that they got involved in, and everything like that. And obviously, uh, start with uh, Professor Borges. So Professor Borges, thank you again for, uh, for joining us today. My pleasure. Thank you so much for the invitation. Absolutely. For, for some of our guests, um, could you just tell us a little bit about who you are, what you do in, uh, in California? Well, uh, I'm, uh, I, I'm, I'm a teacher of the Portuguese language and culture, uh, above all. Um, I am an immigrant from the island of Terceira in the Azores. I came over with my family when I was uh, 10 years old. Uh, in 1968. I know I'm dating myself, but uh, that is uh, <laughs> the truth. <laughs> so uh, we've been here 51 years uh, in California and basically the same area. So my grandfather, my maternal grandfather, had been an immigrant, had immigrated to the U.S. in 1910 and stayed here for 18 years. He stayed here until the end of 1928, just a few months before the Great Depression. He sold his land and returned to Perseida. And then had eight daughters, five of them born in the U.S. and three of them born in, uh, in the Azores. And of those uh, three, one of them was my mom. And so my aunts, who were American citizens, slowly, in the, especially in the mid-1950s, started immigrating uh, because of the tough economic times. Uh, although my grandfather was uh, pretty much well off, but uh, with eight daughters, and uh, it made it tough. And so they uh, started immigrating, and my dad always wanted to try to immigrate, to try to leave and find better opportunities. He actually tried to uh, immigrate, quote-unquote, to Angola and was rejected in uh, 1960 and um, then, then uh, began the journey to the United States in 1968. And so I've been here. I'm pretty much a product of the California public school system. And I taught Portuguese at a high school for 24 years um, and uh, also adjunct faculty at a couple of colleges and universities. And now I have been at the university level for the last few years at uh, California University of Fresno. I am involved heavily in the Portuguese-American community within the state in a variety of projects. And I try to maintain a, a column for a few of the Portuguese newspapers, uh, not just here in the West Coast, but also in the East Coast, and Portugal and the Azores, and try to be involved as much as I can um, as kind of an activist, but also as kind of someone who tries to observe a little bit of the community. So I'm pretty much a, a, an Azorian living in California. Absolutely. You know, my father's actually from the same place, from uh, Praia de Victoria in Traceda, too. That's where my father was born. Well, we have a lot in common, because I was also born in Praia de Victoria. Oh, no kidding. <laughs> no kidding. Yes, I was, and my whole family's from Praia de Victoria. My dad's 
side of the family is all from Praia. My mom is from a little area right next to it called Cabo de Praia. Um, and uh, so uh, my roots are deeply in, in Praia de Vitoria. Absolutely. Absolutely. You you visit Terceiro often? Have you been to the Azores frequently? or? I do. I go there lots because of what I do, uh, either for conferences or book presentations or other things related to my academic life. Um, uh, so I usually am in the Azores at least once a year, sometimes twice a year. Um, and uh, vacation, we haven't uh, been there in a while. We've been to other places, and my sons are, I have two boys in one of them is in Sacramento, he's an attorney, and the other one lives in, is in the service and lives in Seattle, Washington. So we try to spend time with them on our, on our, on our, when we uh, uh, have vacation. But I, I keep in contact with the Azores, and yes, I go there usually a couple times, sometimes three times a year, yes. Absolutely wonderful. All right, so today's segment, I wanted to uh, kind of talk about Portuguese immigration to California. Uh, during my college career in the probably like sophomore year or so, I did a research uh, paper on Portuguese immigration, the waves and kind of traditions they brought. Um, but in terms of New England and kind of, we touched a little bit about the West Coast and then Hawaii. But today I just wanted to focus on the Californian uh, kind of uh, immigration. So to begin, is there any documentation of maybe the first Portuguese person to California or maybe the first wave of Portuguese uh, uh, in California? Kind of how, did, how does this research go about in terms of uh, documenting this? There is uh, Dr. Eduardo Mayandish, who is a professor emeritus from the University of California, Los Angeles, uh, better known as UCLA, um, and one of our most prestigious public universities out here, uh, was uh, really, if we have a history of the Portuguese presence of the Portuguese in the state of California, we owe it to Professor Eduardo Mayandish, who throughout his long career at UCLA did lots of research on the Portuguese-American community, and basically not only did lots of research in the Portuguese-American community, also continued, it was a continuous research and a continuous, uh, continued writing about the Portuguese even of the 1970s and, and 80s and into the 90s, um, and uh, all the way up until he basically retired uh, about a decade ago. Um, so he, uh, he has documented um, in a, actually a book that was uh, published by different uh, publishers um, in Portuguese and has been translated to English as well. It's called The President, the Portuguese Presence in California. And um, he documented the first known uh, Portuguese person in the state of California that there's documentation for, you know. Um, there may be others that we do not have documentation. It was in 1814. Um, from the Minho province in northern Portugal, named Antonio José Rocha, uh, according to him, uh, born in uh, 1790, um, and reached California in 1814 when he basically uh, was part of a, a crew of an English uh, ship, Columbia. Uh, it anchored off of uh, the ports of Monterey here in northern California area, uh, and he deserted, and he's no, basically that we have documentation of the very first. There were quite a few others after that, most of them um, around the whaling industry. Um, and uh, a lot of the research that has been done and that Dr. Diaz uh, left for us um, basically talks about lots of the immigration coming around 1849, obviously because of the gold rush, uh, but um, I just recently was in Sacramento uh, for uh, an event of the California Portuguese American Coalition that I preside, and I met a, uh, 
a man who is uh, whose great grandfather immigrated uh, from the island of Flores in 1832. So we have, uh, you know, we're we're now getting some bits and pieces of other immigrants. But what we have is that 1814, followed by lots of folks from the whaling industry, uh, like this immigrant in 1832, in the 1830s as well, and 1840s as well, uh, so even before California was uh, was a state in the Union. Um, then after that, of course, the gold rush. Um, as you know, uh, the gold rush not only brought uh, folks from uh, immigrants from, uh, from Portugal and the Azores, but also brought us uh, Portuguese who were residing in uh, New England and uh, also in other areas of the of the eastern United States. Uh, everyone was kind of uh, heard one way or another about the gold rush, and uh, we have documentation of not just those coming from Portugal and choosing California, but also those who lived in some of the uh, 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 east coast states, uh, especially New England area, who decided to venture out, you know, for the for the gold uh, rush as well. Um, and then our immigration continued, uh, rather sparse at times, but our immigration continued, so all the research that we have, mostly from the Azores Islands. Um, after the whaling expeditions, mostly then people came and uh, started basically in Northern California, the Oakland, Fremont, what we call today the East Bay, uh, the East San Francisco Bay, and San Francisco itself, that whole area, which is a, a rather large metropolitan area at that time, was a small metropolitan area, just the city of San Francisco and all these areas around Oakland and and uh, some of these other cities that are now really known in the Portuguese American community, San Leandro, Newark, Fremont, Milpitas, San Jose. These were all, of course, agricultural communities, and lots of them got involved in agriculture, uh, in sheep herding, and some of the um, some of the some of, uh, of the work that they did in their own uh, lands uh, back uh, back home. So we have that immigration that was basically uh, of the uh, from 1850 to 1900 and, and uh, the beginning of the 1900s. We had quite a few immigrants, especially in the end of the 1800s and beginning of the 1900s. So there's lots of a big, our first, let's say, big wave of immigrants was indeed like between 1870 and 1921. Um, of course, after World, during World War One, things kind of slowed up, and then the 1921 Immigration Act um, kind of put a damper on some things, and as far as immigrants coming from Portugal and the Azores, and then there was all the turmoil in Europe, and our immigration, we've, we have immigrants. We have histories of people coming to California in the 1930s, 1940s, uh, but basically it was then uh, pretty much like the East Coast as well, the uh, post-Capolinius uh, uh, immigration era, the post-Volcanus Capolinius, and followed, of course, by uh, the Immigration Act of the 1960s. Very interesting. Folks, we are in studio with um, Professor Denis Borges, who is joining us actually via phone from California. He is professor at Fresno State, as well as the director of the Portuguese Beyond uh, Borders Institute. We're going to take a quick break, and when we get back, we're going to talk more about Portuguese immigration um, to California, and then later on, we will discuss the PBBI. Um, So stick around. We'll be right back after these messages.
Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to the Paul Osagiro Show. Again, we'll be here until 5 o'clock this afternoon. Today we are talking with Professor Denise Borges from Fresno State, California. Um, we are talking about the Portuguese immigration to California and kind of the different waves as we uh, did before the break. Uh, Professor Borges, one thing I was just curious about, and we, we mentioned kind of uh, the gold rush in 1849. What was the general way that, uh, let's say, Azorians or Portuguese immigrants kind of found out about this gold rush? Was it literally just, you know, maybe writing letters or word of mouth? How did it really, uh, how did they find out in the Azores or in Portugal about uh, this gold rush opportunity that was happening in California? Well, that's a that's a $64,000 question. Uh, I believe that... Uh, um, I believe exactly what you said. Basically, folks communicating with each other through letters. Uh, we didn't have, obviously, in the Azores the same type of press that we have today um, uh, in any format, but uh, we had some press. But, uh, and I'm sure that the press itself you know, mentioned that. It was, uh, in, 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 it was a big thing that was known throughout the world. But I think as folks communicated with each other through letters, um, word of mouth, quote-unquote, uh, it, it kind of reached that back and forth. Uh, and I think especially, especially as folks communicated uh, with uh, those who were already here, that those who were already here, those who were in the East Coast and then made the transition to California, obviously was because of uh, the news traveled, even though it's slower pace uh, than today, um, news traveled uh, to the East Coast and, and, and folks made their way over here. I would say more by family communication than anything else. Absolutely. Now, uh, I know we mentioned kind of before the break, we talked about the different industries that they kind of got involved in. I, I know in like New England, at least from just, again, I haven't done um, extensive research, but just from the people I've known, I mean, they t typically went towards like factory work or mill work here. Is there a certain industry that um, the, maybe Portuguese immigrants were predominantly in um, just th throughout their history here, or is it kind of dispersed throughout different industries? It's dispersed, but there is a, we are heavier in some industries than others. For example, in San Diego, until... Mm, until about uh, 30 years ago, 30, 35 years ago, actually, we were uh, had a very, very heavy presence in the tuna fishing industry. Um, if one travels to San Diego today, there is a monument to tuna fishermen, and we look at all the names that were that are there, and there's uh, Portuguese and Portuguese name one after another. It's an immigration, and it's interesting because you, you break it down by region. San Diego um, is, an, is a community that has... Lots of immigrants from the Azores, but also uh, something that you don't see in a lot of other areas in California, a great percentage of immigration as well from the Madeira Islands, um, and a few from mainland Portugal as well. Um, and from the Azores, they are traditionally from the island of Pico, and a few from São Jorge and Real, from the Triangle, that, that area. Um, and we, the Portuguese had a very strong presence in the tuna industry in San Diego, uh, not just in the recent past, basically for about 100 years or so. Um, and certainly in the last part of the, of the 20th century until the tuna industry basically left uh, the San Diego area. The other area, that, the other area of economic um, development that we are very heavily involved in is in the dairy industry. Uh, and that is in the Central Valley of California, or the San Joaquin Valley of California, which is uh, known to many as the breadbasket of the United States and part of breadbasket of the world, but certainly of the United States and North America, and uh, lots of different agricultural and dairy products that are produced here. 
for example, Fresno County, where Fresno State is, is the largest producer of dairy, uh, of, of uh, agricultural products in, uh, the, uh, in, in California and in the top three in the United States. Um, Tulare County, just south, where there's a predominant Portuguese-American community, is one of the largest, it's the largest dairy producer in uh, the uh, uh, in, 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 the, in California and also top five in the United States. And so it's, um, the Portuguese have had a very strong presence in the dairy industry. Uh, at one time, Professor Hamiru Dutra, who was a professor at one of our polytechnic universities in Pomona in Southern California, uh, very involved in the sciences and uh, has also done quite a few studies in this field. And uh, he and Al Graves, uh, who is also a professor, uh, retired professor, both of them, um, who uh, worked for many years in private industry and did his uh, Ph.D. at UCLA and wrote a book the, called The uh, Portuguese Californians about our presence in the dairy industry. It was uh, said that the Portuguese controlled over 60% of the dairy industry in the Central Valley. Today, wow. it still is pretty close to 50%. Um, the, uh, the, the Portuguese are still very heavily involved in the dairy industry. In the 1960s, they were owners. They were, also, they were also the milkers. So when my father arrived in 1968, when we all arrived in 1968, you could go from dairy to dairy to dairy, anywhere from Sacramento in the north to Bakersfield in the south, which is a, uh, you know, a huge area of a few hundred, quite a few hundred miles. And every single dairy had at least one, two, if not all, were of Portuguese uh, ancestry or Portuguese immigrants. Either the dairy was owned by Portuguese, uh, uh, Portuguese ancestry, uh, already second and third generation, but the milkers, the people who milked the cows, the people who failed the cows, the employees were pretty much all Azorians, recent immigrants uh, from the Azores, from that big wave of immigration after the volcano, uh, uh, the Capulina eruption. So the, uh, the dairy industry was predominant. Today, the Portuguese still own pretty close to 50%, as I said, of the dairy industry in the San Joaquin Valley, according to all the data that we have. Um, and they're involved in many other services that are in, around the dairy industry, from milk testing to dairy feed sales to all of that. Uh, however, milking the cows, you have probably less than 10% uh, are, they're mostly now uh, Hispanics. But uh, at one time, it was the other way around. At one time, it was maybe 90% Portuguese and 10% Hispanic. Now it's about 10% Portuguese milking uh, as employees um, and 90% Hispanic. But the Portuguese have integrated really well. And so tuna industry in San Diego, the dairy industry, and now also a little bit in agriculture. Portuguese are diversifying into the almond industry and uh, the walnut industry, et cetera. And then in, in Northern California... In the Bay Area is where you have more of the traditional services and people getting involved in factory work when they first came, especially the immigrants of the 1960s, such as the East Coast. Um, no longer there are lots of factories in Northern California, so that immigration is pretty much involved, or second generation, first and second generation are involved in services um, and small uh, companies, medium companies, some of them in technology a little bit, uh, more and more. The younger people are involved in the technological world. Um, and something that's happened tremendously in the last 25 years, uh, which we are all very proud of, is the number of Portuguese Americans, uh, Americans involved in education. Uh, just for example, in 
the city I live, it's a small city. It's only 57,000 people. And uh, just here in this city, we have over 55 teachers who are of Portuguese background. Wow, that's incredible. That is incredible. That is great. That is just phenomenal. Uh, The number of Portuguese Americans who now, first, second generation, have traded the farm uh, as far as workers in the farm, those who did not go into management or ownership, and have gone into education, whether it be teachers, uh, people, counselors, people in different staffs or uh, administrators. We have uh, over 50 in just in this city. Uh, and so that's, uh, that's really great. But that's not just in this city. It's happened a lot in the San Joaquin Valley. So it sounds like um, kind of the immigration to California from the Portuguese, they kind of took like an entrepreneurial kind of uh, guide, if you will. I know initially you said a good majority of the milkers were Azorian, but it seems like they were two entrepreneurs where, in the New England area, we do have that occasionally, but I kind of felt like, and I, haven't, I don't know the exact numbers, but I really didn't think of a per high percentage being entrepreneurs as it sounds like it was in California. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I don't know the, the, the New England situation, so I couldn't assess it. Uh, but I do know that here, um, every milker, every dairy worker who came from the Azores in the 1960s who wanted to stay in the dairy industry, their great big um, goal was to become a dairy owner. Um, uh, even if it started at that time, it was available. I'm talking about now the 1970s, mid-1970s, late-1970s. You could start a dairy with about 100 or 150 cows. Um, so now it's, of course, totally absurd to do that. But, uh, and we have Portuguese in this area who are owners of uh, dairies. We have 15,000 cows and 18,000 cows and 5,000. So it's big numbers. Uh, they tell me that in order to survive, you have to have a minimum of 24 to 2,500 cows, and that's probably a lot, what a lot of our dairymen do have. But there are those who have uh, a lot more. However, in the 1970s, yes, after people worked in the dairy industry for a few years, anywhere from five to ten, uh, a dozen years, they're, they're, if they were going to stay in it, the majority of them that stayed in it, I would say, um, the majority that stayed in it eventually did become owners. Yes, they started their own or they bought someone else out. That was, uh, uh, And then those who didn't stay in it obviously went into other fields. But I believe that, the, and, 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 and the data shows us, because today there are very few Portuguese Americans who are milking cows, okay, or, or, or working as an employee in the, on, in the dairy, other than the few of them who are managers of these mega dairies, you know, 15, 18,000, they usually have two, three managers. But if you're not in management of a, of a, of a dairy here in the, in the San Joaquin Valley, very few of them are milking. The ones who are milking are the ones who have just recently come from the Azores, uh, and it's kind of their first job in America. But, um, and we have a few of those, not that many, but we every year we have a few families that do immigrate. Uh, however, the majority of those who immigrated in the 1960s and 70s have either left the industry and gone into other uh, business or education or other fields. Those who have stayed in it have become owners, yes. Got it. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, we are uh, talking with Professor Denise Borges from Fresno State, discussing Portuguese immigration to California. Uh, we've talked a little bit about their settlements, kind of the industries they worked in, uh, and then we're going to move on to kind of uh, kind of talk about the California communities um, of por- Portuguese communities, what they look like, and then we will talk about the Portuguese Beyond Borders Institute. Uh, stick around. We'll be right back after these messages.
Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to the Paulo Sargero Show. We'll be here until 5 o'clock this afternoon. Uh, we are talking with uh, Professor Dinej Borges from uh, Fresno State about Portuguese immigration to California. And then we will move on to talk about the Portuguese Beyond Borders Institute. Uh, Professor, one thing I was curious about, again, I've never been to California. I still want to make that trip out one of these days to see the community. Um, over here, you know, we have areas like uh, parts of East Providence, uh, New Bedford, um, uh, East Providence, Rhode Island, New Bedford, Mass, and Fall River, Mass, where the Portuguese community is kind of a condensed area, and a lot of them are uh, together. Uh, does, do communities look like that in California? How does the Portuguese community look like? Is it all together, or they kind of like spurs throughout? Well, that's a, that's a good question. First of all, you need to come out and do a series of shows out here. That would be awesome. So uh, let's work on that as a possibility. Absolutely. Uh, Great, yeah, but uh, so yes and no. Um, in some of the metropolitan areas, especially certain cities, San Jose, for example, at one time in Northern California had what was called the Little Portugal, and around the Five Wounds Church, uh, which is a Portuguese parish, around the church, every other house was uh, Portuguese American. Um, that has changed dramatic, dramatically in the last 25 to 30 years. Uh, but if you came in the late 1970s or 80s, that pretty much was was going on. It started changing in the late 80s, and certainly uh, since then. In in some of the other metropolitan areas, for example, in Los Angeles, there's a community called Artesia that uh, has about uh, a few thousand, maybe three thousand Portuguese Americans. Um, the uh, area of Artesia, uh, also because of the condensed city, the city is very small, um, and so there are a few roads or a few streets, a few avenues that you go through, and there's a heavier concentration of Portuguese-Americans, such as also in Southern California, when I mentioned very south of San Diego in the Point Loma area where the fishing industry was big, there's still a pretty uh, good concentration of Portuguese-Americans. Um, and there are a few streets that you know have some, a uh, few more families than others. But as a general rule, uh, no, because if you go through other areas uh, uh, we are spread out in the East Bay, for example, of San Francisco, the cities I mentioned, Milpitas, Newark, Fremont, San Leandro, Oakland. Um, and then if you go into the San Joaquin Valley, uh, there really isn't, uh, even in cities that have a strong Portuguese presence, there isn't a traditional Portuguese neighborhood. People kind of integrated really well um, uh, in, here um, in the San Joaquin Valley, partially because that big wave of immigration that happened uh, post Capolinos, um, basically went to live in farms, and the farms are not next to each other. Sometimes they are separated by five or ten miles or even more. And so uh, people kind of, when they moved, when, they, when the transition was done from the dairy, those who left the industry, uh, into the cities, they went into other cities. They traditionally didn't go into a Portuguese neighborhood. They would go into another other different neighborhood. So we don't have that high concentration as you see in the, some of the cities that you mentioned of the East Coast, where you go in neighborhoods and house after house uh, of a Portuguese American. That is not something that has happened other than those traditional three pockets that I mentioned, but they have changed dramatically. So uh, there's a, there are pros and cons to that, as you obviously know. Um, and some of the pros, obviously, people became much more integrated. Um, people learned the language a lot more. Um, but they also lost their mother language. So there is that uh, coin, that other side of the coin that sometimes we don't talk about. 
the California, and I think all academics would probably agree with me. If they disagree, well, <laughs> have some data. But anyway, <laughs> most would agree with me. If they disagree, they're wrong. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good way to put it. Uh, I don't want to be that blunt. But the, uh, the, the, if they, I think most people agree that the California community has integrated really well into the California American mainstream. And because of that, we see not just from today, today obviously we have that in both uh, the East Coast and the West Coast, uh, Portuguese-Americans in public office. But, you know, in the 1970s, we already had Portuguese in, the, in, in public office. In the early 1900s, uh, we had Portuguese in public office. So they kind of integrated really well because they couldn't, and the point I make is this, they, they couldn't survive just in the Portuguese votes. So in other words, there is no district, especially right now in California, where one can get elected uh, just on the Portuguese votes, or you need the Portuguese vote to get elected because we're dispersed. Okay, so and for example, Congressman Jim Costa, who is from uh, the Central Valley here in California, the Portuguese Americans represent less than four percent of the voting population of his district. Uh, Congressman Devin Nunes, who is very well known because he's in the news every other day. Uh, is his district is also less than four and a half percent. So there's no way that they have to forge, um, they have to forge partnerships, coalitions with other ethnic groups or with other folks in, the, in their district. And so I think that they're able to do that, whether they do it now or they did it uh, 30 years ago or even 40 years ago or in the beginning of the 20th century. They, they do that because they're pretty well integrated into the mainstream society. We, just like in the, in the East Coast, the Portuguese um, are very respected, uh, are very well liked. I mean, that's a generality, that's a general statement, but they are. Um, and so um, I believe that um, this integration also has a, a, a price. You know, you do have a little bit more of an involvement. We have, for example, in California, even as dispersed as we are, we have over 142 people in elected office from city council to school boards, et cetera, um, that we know of. And I, we believe we, we have more. Every day we try to find, we find others. However, then the, the counterbalance to that is sometimes you lose the language. I think the East Coast has kept the Portuguese language alive a lot more than we have done that here in the West Coast. You know, it's and that's the price you pay for integration. Absolutely. It's interesting you brought that up because I was... Um Several years ago, there was an article in um, maybe the Herald News or something like that that I was reading here, a newspaper out of, uh, I think it's New Bedford, or uh, I believe they're out of New Bedford. And it talked about uh, like English barrier, uh, English language being a barrier for the Portuguese. And I was talking to a buddy of mine, and he tells me, he goes, you know, I don't understand how, you know, uh, immigrants could be for so long and they didn't grasp the language. Well, I used, I used to say all the time, and I still do, I go, they didn't have to. If you immigrated to an area that spoke Portuguese, almost the entire community spoke Portuguese. You're a grocery store. They spoke Portuguese over here in Shaf's Market. The factory you went to, everyone spoke Portuguese. There was no need, uh, to, to be frank, to, to learn the English language because it's almost like you managed enough. But now since it's changing, that area is changing, now they see that being such a huge barrier now. So I think it's, uh, we have the, it, it's almost like a pro-anacon depending on how you want to argue it. Um, but it's something maybe a lot of people don't really necessarily think about, but it's, um, it's a fact that, that that can happen to any community. Correct, correct. And it, it happened here somewhat. You know, some of the folks who stayed in the 
uh, dairy business um, because everyone connected with the dairy business was Portuguese. They did, took longer or never did learn uh, English as well as they'd like to, as well as they should, um, especially, and if, of course, if they immigrated at, you know, at an age, you know, at an older age, that's different. But if even the ones who came over as teenagers or, uh, right, you know, they, they didn't go to school because uh, the immigration in the 1960s and 70s, if you left to the Azores and you were 16 or 17 years old and you came to California, you didn't go to high school. Unfortunately, you went directly to the, to the dairy and you worked with your father uh, on, on a dairy. And so these folks who didn't go to school uh, here, uh, obviously, that they took longer. And some of them that stayed in the dairy business, yeah, just like you said, they're in the East Coast because of, of everyone being uh, so much together. But here, even though on the farm, the Portuguese were such a huge presence in the dairy industry that the feed salesman spoke Portuguese. Someone at the at the at the at the market spoke Portuguese. Someone at the uh, at the creamery where they dropped off their milk spoke Portuguese. So there was no need for those. Those who came out of the dairy industry and went into other fields, then yes, they they had to learn a little bit, of course, uh, English in order in order to survive, in order to you know put their entrepreneurial skills in, in, into action. And uh, and I think because of the dispersedness of California, California is. Uh, still, uh, we'll see what happens after the next year's census, but it still is the largest Portuguese-American community in the United States. Um, second, of course, to Massachusetts, which is, you know, we, according to the U.S. Census of 2000, around 350,000 people who are of Portuguese background. But that's in a state of 40 million, so, uh, or just about, so 39.5. So it's a huge population, and we think it's even more than 350,000. However, the official numbers are what they are, but... Um, but the, 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 the thing is, 350 or 400, even half a million in a population of 40 million is not a great big percentage. And because we're dispersed throughout the state, there are Portuguese all the way up in Arcata, uh, which is almost by Oregon, uh, and all the way down to in, 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 San, in, the, in San Diego. And uh, from Arcata to, to San Diego is like a 14-and-a-half-hour drive. So, you know, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's a huge state with population that has integrated, and so it's kind of sometimes not as easy as uh, doing some research in, in the East Coast. Absolutely. Now, to put the, again, because I've never been there, maybe some of our listeners haven't been to California either. Uh, do you guys have uh, kind of Portuguese markets and Portuguese restaurants throughout it too? Is that is that a presence in the state of California? Not as much, uh, and because of this person's of it, we have just a few Portuguese restaurants, I believe, in the whole state. Mm, I think three, so believe that. That's probably just one street in Fall River. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> on, on your bed. Uh, I mean, there's a state with 350,000 people. has three Portuguese restaurants. Uh, but again, it's because of this person's of the, the, the population. Um, I think also, and this is maybe sound like a criticism, and if it is, it is, um, I, sometimes folks here uh, that have the we've had more, but they haven't been very successful. And at times, because people have only counted on the local Portuguese community, they haven't gone beyond. Um, and the marketing wasn't just done properly, from my perspective. I think we need to mainstream our food a little bit more um, uh, here in California. Uh, markets, there are just about every single community has a small, not a market that's typically Portuguese. For example, here in the valley, where the the biggest Portuguese American community resides is between uh, Sacramento and um, uh, and Bakersfield, uh, but again, that's an area that is uh, to commute from 
Sacramento to, to Bakersfield is five and a half hours. So um, in, 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 in that area, most what we have are most of the supermarkets, uh, the chains or local supermarkets will have a Portuguese section, but there aren't any typically Portuguese markets. There is one in San Jose. There's uh, the, in San Diego, for example, the local Portuguese hall, the IDS halls, and those are really big in California. Um, the local Portuguese hall has a little small market that they open up a few days a week uh, and just, you know, sell Portuguese, um, Portuguese uh, products. But we don't have, it's a total different community in that aspect than the East Coast. Totally, totally. We're going to have to change that. We're going to have to find a way to promote our food over there throughout the, uh, open up to all different cultures too. Correct. And I believe it can. I believe sometimes that some of the restaurants who weren't as successful as they'd like to be and folks, you know, disappointed and gave up on it was basically because they were counting on the local Portuguese community and because, as I mentioned, to repeat myself, and I don't want to do that, the dispersion of it, it didn't work. We have to promote it within the mainstream. Uh, the, the culinary, unfortunately, other than a, a couple of lessons that I mentioned, the big culinary experiences are uh, what the Portuguese halls here in California. Every single community has a Portuguese hall or a Portuguese association with a actual physical space that belongs to them. Mm-hmm. And there's the, usually the DES or Divino Espírito Santo, the Holy Ghost Festivals. I mean, they're huge in California. There's over 100 of them in the state. And, and so during those uh, events, during those events, not only do they have the traditional Portuguese sopas or Azorian sopas, but they will also have usually they'll cook some different uh, Portuguese uh, uh, culinary experiences that they have. Uh, like they'll do an improvised restaurant, a pasca, it's called in, the, in, in Portugal, uh, where they'll sell some some Portuguese uh, typical Portuguese dishes, but uh, not on an ongoing basis. I think, and I've been a strong proponent of that. I think just as much as we have integrated ourselves. Uh, the, I think the community in California should be recognized for doing what I believe is a really good job in integrating itself in the mainstream as far as um, as far as economic growth, as far as our businesses. Our businesses are totally integrated. You know, we just don't sell to Portuguese or we just don't promote whatever we are promoting to Portuguese. We promote to everybody, whatever businesses we're in, from the agricultural business to the sweet potato business to uh, to any kind of uh, uh, business from uh, industry uh, to to something ag or non-ag related, I believe we need to do that as well with our culinary experience with our, with our gastronomy and as well with our culture. We're still doing a lot of the events only for us, and we need to make them a lot more mainstream. Uh, there's a few communities doing that experience uh, throughout California, and one of them, for example, uh, Pismo Beach, which is a little uh, uh, coastal town in central California, a town that has a population of less than 10,000 people uh, and has a Portuguese festival in August for three and a half days to where they can have anywhere between fourteen to 16,000 people there. Um, and uh, the reason they do it, part of it is, of course, it's at the... It's a seacoast town, and people do like to go there, especially those of us who live in the valley. It's very, very hot. Uh, it's a good way to get, to get away from the heat in the, of the Central Valley uh, into a more pleasant uh, atmosphere. But also because they partnered up, for example, with the local Chamber of Commerce uh, and the local City Hall, and now the St. Anthony, it's called the St. Anthony Portuguese Celebration. The St. Anthony Portuguese Celebration is not just a Portuguese celebration. It is, and it's done by a committee, but it's also on the local... Uh, 
scene. In other words, it's part of a tourist attraction for the city of San Luis Obispo. I know that's done also in the East Coast. And I think that we here in California need to have more of that example. Absolutely. Folks, we are in studio uh, talking with Professor Denise Borges from Fresno State discussing uh, Portuguese immigration to California. When we come back, we will uh, start to wrap up our conversation, uh, discuss um, the Portuguese uh, Beyond Borders Institute, and, uh, of course, uh, start to wrap it up, like I said again. So stick around. We'll be right back after these messages. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to the Paula Sargero Show. Uh, today we are talking with Professor Denise Borges from Fresno State. Uh, we discussed uh, earlier the Portuguese immigration to California, kind of what the uh, industries they were involved in, and what communities look like in California. Uh, now we're going to move on to the Portuguese uh, Beyond Borders uh, Institute uh, that has uh, was implemented in um, 2018, I believe. Uh, so, Professor Borges, could you tell us a little bit about what is the Portuguese uh, Beyond Borders Institute? So it's a Portuguese uh, Studies Center, uh, like there are many universities throughout the United States that uh, have those, especially in areas that there are Portuguese-American communities. Um, Fresno State um, is a uh, state university, part of the California State University system. Um, it is a university with about, right now, 24,000 students. And um, we have had Portuguese courses at Fresno State, uh, for over 30 years. Uh, but there's just been a traditional course of uh, a couple of courses each semester. We don't have any minors or majors, unfortunately, in Portuguese uh, at Fresno State. There are a few uh, colleges throughout the, the California who have minors, just a, very few who have majors, but a couple of them do, or actually more than a couple, I think four of them. Um, and, um, and Fresno being in the central part of the San Joaquin Valley uh, and with such a large student population, uh, at such a tie into the community, we felt it was uh, the right time to uh, put a little more emphasis on the Portuguese studies. So there is a Portuguese professor that is working full-time as well, Inês Lima, who is a graduate of the University of Massachusetts Dartmouth, uh, did her PhD there, um, and she is in charge of teaching uh, the Portuguese courses and a, and a course in English about the Portuguese-speaking uh, world. Um, I teach also two courses, uh, uh, Portuguese language and culture. And then from there, we began this process of talking to the different colleges uh, of uh, building an institute that would be beyond just the teaching of the Portuguese language and culture, that would be a little bit more um, interdisciplinary and a little bit more holistic. And so uh, about five years ago, um, the university began an exchange program with the University of the Azores with one particular college in the university, which is the Jordan College of Agricultural Science and Technology. Um, Fresno State is considered one of the top uh, agricultural studies uh, colleges in the United States um, and the top three in California. And so the, uh, we began this exchange program with the Thursday campus of the University of the Azores that also focuses on uh, agriculture um, uh, as well. And so from there, uh, from that program, we thought we needed to do something a little bit more holistic. And that's what we, that's when we began Portuguese Beyond Borders Institute to be a, a center that involves three different colleges. So it can be uh, romantic and, and excellent. It can also be a pain and you nowhere, uh, <laughs> which is the uh, in working with three different colleges inside a university because everyone kind of pulls in a different way. But we have we have had really wonderful support from administration. Um, so the um, we the Portuguese Beyond Borders Institute is constant is a product of three colleges: the College of, of Agriculture, 
Jordan College of Agricultural Science and Technology, the College of Social Science, and the College of Arts and Humanities. And so we pull those three colleges together, and from there we have right now a lecture series that is sponsored by FLAT, uh, where the lectures are everything from poetry to the ag world. Um, and uh, we also have, uh, with the College of Social Science and the College of Arts and Humanities, we have begun the collecting of the Portuguese oral history project, which is two-faced. We're the, collecting the oral history of the Portuguese presence in central California, and hoping to extend it to all areas of California. Uh, and we're also doing, with MCJ, our media communication journalism department, uh, collecting video, video interviews to do a video documentary that our local PBS station is interested in doing, which is the presence of the Portuguese in the 99 corridor. 99 is a uh, highway that connects the Central Valley and all of California. And so that is uh, one of the, uh, the projects as well. Um, and, and the idea is to basically register the history of the Portuguese presence in the Central Valley. Uh, to be blunt again, uh, we've done a pretty lousy job of that. Um, in the past, there's lots of stories that went to the grave with folks as folks died. Uh, oral history may have not been very, very, uh, or looked upon with very favorable eyes by historians, you know, 25 or 30 or even 40 years ago. But certainly in the last uh, two and a half decades, people have taken a different look at oral history um, as a way to democ democratize history itself. And so um, it is a way also for us to register these stories of the Portuguese presence uh, in, in, in California. Uh, the, all the whole histories will be transcribed. They will be archived, a special archive in our Henry Madden, the library at Fresno State, uh, available off, obviously to everyone. And so it's an ongoing project. Um, we are also uh, contemplating um, bringing together lots of the different Portuguese-American authors that we have with abundance, thank God, in California. Uh, we have poets, we have fiction writers, we have uh, essay writers, you know, we have a good nucleus of uh, creativity amongst Portuguese of second and third generation that we'd like to pull all of these resources together. And we want to be kind of a hub for everything that is Portuguese in the academic world um, in central California, and uh, actually in, in kind of the West Coast. We are hosting our on April 25th called Filaments of the Atlantic Heritage, where it will be a place for us to discuss legacy, reflection, and perspective, and how do we move forward. Because the community, if it's not really debated and looked at with different lenses, we will kind of lose what we have built, and that's kind of a disservice for our ancestors. Absolutely. You know, it's great to see. I, I love that you guys are doing the oral history. Um, starting next month, I'm going to be doing the same thing here through our local TV uh, access um, television here. So I'm going to be doing the videos of it, and we're also going to make a podcast out of it, too. So I'll be sure to share that with you if you guys are interested. Congratulations. That's great. Thank you. Great yeah, it, it's, it's, we're, we're basically, it's going to be just um, uh, anyone from Portuguese-speaking countries. So I'm trying to grab people from the Azores, Portugal, and obviously some African uh, countries as well so i'll be that to me is one of the most um I, I, in my opinion just oral history is just so important because if we don't document that and no one will know or no you know the stories are just uh from secondhand accounts after and no one really gets to hear the from the actual person the actual immigrant so um i'm really glad you guys are doing that project because it, it yeah and we're, we're we're doing that at the university level so our portuguese 1b students for example have to do oral history as part of their 
semester project. So, for example, last semester we had 22 students do oral history. Uh, we have a group of volunteers in the communities. We're training. Uh, we had an institute over the summer. We're going to have different uh, forums. We're going to train community leaders to do their own oral history of their families and their organizations. And we're also doing a project with three of our high schools as a pilot to where we're going to have a particular class do oral history um, and then have these students also attend the university and present their work to an academic community, which is kind of motivating for them as well. So I think we're working all these different avenues in order to bring it in, the high schools, the community, and the academic world. It's marvelous. It really is. That's a, you guys are doing a great job, and, and obviously the work you do, I appreciate. So thank you so much for what you do for the Portuguese community out there in California and as a, as a whole, too. Thank you so much. Thank you. I appreciate your kind words, and I know that uh, we can only imitate what the East Coast does. You guys have so much that we're just trying to plug along. <laughs> thank you. Uh, so we like to uh, wrap, every, uh, wrap our shows up, and I typically like to uh, love to ask our guests, um, and it's a fun question for most of our guests until they get stumped. <laughs> but uh, I, uh, if you could talk to anyone from history and ask them one question, who would Professor Borges well, want to meet, and what would you want to ask that individual? That is a tough question, and that is not a nice way to interview. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, I, um, you know, that's tough. I'm not a historian. I'm a, a pupil of history. I love to read history, and, and I've taken many history courses, my minor my actually my bachelor's was in history and political science um so in the beginning i was kind of a <laughs> but i do have a love for history if i had and this has nothing to do with the portuguese world but this is what just came to my mind if i had anyone to speak with i would speak with one of my favorite people to read upon which is thomas jefferson um kind of the founder of the ideas for our democracy in the united states and i would just ask him basically is this the kind of democracy that you envision Absolutely interesting. I'm not sure if we had Thomas Jefferson. We've had several presidents. We've had several presidents, and um, uh, so that's interesting. Thomas Jefferson, one of the founders. That's awesome. Um, Professor Borges, I'd like to thank you once again for coming on and discussing our, uh, the Portuguese immigration in California as well as the uh, Portuguese um, uh, Borders Beyond, Insti- uh, Beyond Borders Institute. I will also share this through our radio page here uh, So to uh, pro- to to share so our listeners can uh, you know look it up if they'd like to so that'll be done on my end um again so thank you so much if you ever want to come on again discuss another topic for our listeners you are more than welcome i'd love to we'll uh, we'll be in touch i'd love for you to be part of what we're doing out here as well and maybe we can work on some collaborative projects in the future i appreciate that absolutely absolutely will do all right professor borgers thank you again thank you so much and boys festers merry christmas happy new year to all of uh, to, to you and uh, uh, your entire family, and obviously to the uh, many friends I have throughout uh, the, the East Coast, uh, especially in the two states of Massachusetts and Rhode Island. <laughs> Likewise, Guadalman, thank you. There you have it, ladies and gentlemen. That was Professor Denise Borges from Fresno State. Discussed a little bit about uh, Portuguese immigration to the United States, uh, to California, and as well as the Portuguese Borders Beyond Institute. We're going to take our top of the hour break. When we get back, we'll discuss more uh, kind of the news happening and play your uh, music for you.